All right. We sometimes do obituaries in this program, and we're going to do one today. Well, at least one of sorts. We're noting the passing of rocket scientist, well, technically rocket engineer for NASA, Bob Ebeling. I guess technically he was an engineer for Morton Thiokol, a NASA contractor. There was a curious piece last month in the Washington Post by Sarah Kaplan about Mr. Ebeling, which I think is worthy of a few minutes of discussion. Until his death in Brigham City, Utah at the age of 89 last month, he'd been troubled by guilt for 30 years about what happened to the Space Shuttle Challenger. Back in 1987, Ebeling and four other engineers had pleaded with NASA to delay the launch. They had concerns about whether the rubber rings on the shuttle's booster rockets would seal properly in the frigid winter weather. Ebeling even authored an alarmed memo detailing the problem with the rings. Its subject line read bluntly, HELP! Exclamation point. But the engineers were overruled. On January 28, 1986, I said 87 a minute ago, actually was 86, Ebeling and his colleagues watched in helpless horror as the shuttle and its crew turned to ashes in the sky. For the story, we need to turn back to 1985. Booster rockets recovered from the previous launch of the Discovery space shuttle had shown signs of seal problems. Ebeling, who'd been working in engineering for 40 years, and two other engineers were assigned to examine the issue. Their findings were worrying. The rubber O-ring seals stiffened in cold weather, allowing the hot, high-pressure gas inside the boosters to leak out. But the launch date for the Challenger had already been delayed once because of wind conditions. And the forecast temperatures for that January day were a chilly 30 degrees, even in Florida. And I have to note at this time that I remember so well hearing about the concern from people at NASA that might not be able to get this shuttle launched. They kept talking about how cold the weather was down there and how this was potentially a problem. I remember very distinctly thinking to myself, what's the big deal? If you can't launch now, you know, delay the mission and launch later when it warms up. Well, it turns out the afternoon before the Challenger was due to take off, Ebeling called Alan McDonald, his boss at Morton Thiokol, and warned him that the cold could be disastrous for the launch. That set off six hours of tele that set off six hours of teleconferences between Thiokol engineers and executives and officials with NASA. The space agency was determined to launch, even though it's never been quite clear why. Although I can tell you, as I just did from personal experience, you knew something was up. It's been noted that President Ronald Reagan was due to discuss the space program in his State of the Union address later that night. And NASA had prided itself on sending up shuttles reliably. Whatever the reason, officials fiercely resisted the suggestion of another delay. George Hardy, Deputy Director for Science and Engineering at the Marshall Space Flight Center, allegedly told the engineers he was appalled by their recommendation. And late that night, the executives and officials cast their final votes. Go. Ebeling drove home furious. He told his wife, it's going to blow up. The next day, launch day, Ebeling invited Roger Boisjoli, his fellow engineer, into his office to watch the shuttle take off. When the clock reached T-minus five seconds, Boisjoli would later tell the Guardian newspaper, the two men reached out to hold each other's hands. Three, two, 
one. At liftoff, the shuttle rocketed into the sky, clearing the launch pad without issue. I turned to Bob and said, we've dodged a bullet, Boys Jolie recalled. For his part, Ebeling was in the midst of a prayer. Thank you for making me wrong, he whispered. And then, Ebeling later told CBS, kaboom, it went. All seven astronauts on board died. Three weeks later, Ebeling and Boyce Jolie agreed to anonymous interviews with NPR in which they detailed their failed fight to stop the launch. Ebeling told reporter Howard Berkey's, I should have done more. I could have done more. And he, Boyce Jolie, McDonald, and engineers Arnold Thompson and Brian Russell would later give testimony before the Presidential Commission investigating the explosion. All of them said the same thing. NASA and Thiokol had been warned that it was unsafe to launch in the cold, but they went ahead anyway. Brigham City, where many Thiokol workers lived, was hit hard by the disaster. People were simultaneously horrified by it and worried about what it might mean for their own futures. Meanwhile, Thiokol became the target of national outrage over the deaths of seven astronauts. But noted Sarah Kaplan. According to the Los Angeles Times, within the company, the men who testified about Thiokol and NASA's failures became known as the Five Lepers. The lepers were isolated at meetings, excluded from technical conferences, and their reports were ignored. Eventually, Ebeling retired. He felt like he wasn't needed anymore at his job, he told the Times, and he wanted nothing to do with the shuttle program anymore. So there you have it. A decision rooted in politics that overrode decisions based on engineering. Anyway, as a general rule, we would suggest that um, anytime political arguments trump those of being made by engineers, you're going to have problems. Anyway, we recommend that you read the full piece by Sarah Kaplan in the Washington Post. Some superiors finally got around to tell Ebeling, no, it wasn't your fault. You did all you could. Nevertheless, the fact that they became lepers at Morton Thiokol uh, does say something about, you know, what it means to be a whistleblower. I mean, Ebeling went home the night before the launch and told his wife it's going to blow up. He loses the argument, but when he later reveals that, you know, a lot of us thought this was a bad idea, he becomes the bad guy. Which is another reason why we like to champion people who stand up and try to speak truth to power. And we will do our level best in in the months to come to bring you more such individuals. All right, in about the six or so minutes we have left, I want to talk a bit about lobbying and a bit about water. In the pages of the Sacramento Bee, a wonderful article appeared by Taryn Luna. It's also available online about how over at Sacramento State University, there's a class being offered in lobbying. And political consultant and lobbyist Richie Ross is helping lead the class. Ross quipped, as classes were being convened, that because we're teaching you about lobbying in this class, cheating is okay. The article notes that while the lobbying industry is among the largest employers at the state capitol, with 2,260 registered as of last month, few universities offer lobbying majors or programs specifically geared for students interested in the profession. Some lobbyists study political science or law in college, and many matriculate into the industry after working in the legislature. Talking about the class, Ross told students that they won't be graded on whether the government's governor signs their bill because the governor can be difficult. He also informed his students that personal stories and testimonies are more likely to sway lawmakers than facts. (laughs) 
He notes that big numbers suggest the problem is insurmountable, while smaller numbers can mean the bill can make a difference. We should note about Richie Ross that the piece states that his first job at the Capitol was a low-level aide before eventually becoming chief of staff to Willie Brown, California's legendary speaker who ruled the assembly for 15 years. Now Ross is known around town as a campaign consultant and lobbyist, as cutthroat as he is well-connected. It was noted that he worked on the campaign for former state Senator Ron Calderon, currently awaiting trial on various corruption charges, and advised former state Senator Leland Yee, who last month was sentenced to up to eight years in prison for felony racketeering. And I want to note that if you're in this class, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We want to hear how things are going. And in the three minutes we have left, I want to note that the results seem to be in, and El Nino was a bust in Southern California. Evidently, downtown Los Angeles has gotten six and a half inches of this so-called water year since October, which is, well, it's almost an inch more than last year, but it's less than half their historical average. And in something of an understatement, a piece by Dale Klassler and Ryan Sabalo in the Sacramento Bee notes that while North State reservoirs are brimming, we did get, you know, an average year more than average up in the Sierra snowpack, thankfully, but not a lot more than average. The meager rainfall in cities such as Los Angeles and San Diego mean continued strain on California's man-made water system. Southern California, short of water, but with economic and political clout to spare, will press the state to deliver plentiful water from Northern California for the near future. And uh, in point of fact, another article by these two gentlemen about... uh, What's going on in the Delta notes that the Metropolitan Water District of Los Angeles just spent $175 million to buy five islands down in the Delta. Peace in the Bee noted that Steve Arakawa, the agency's director of Bay Delta Initiatives, said it might use at least one of the islands to store dirt and construction equipment for California Water Fix, Governor Jerry Brown's controversial $15 billion plan to re-engineer the Delta's plumbing system by building a pair of underground tunnels. Oddly enough, the Metropolitan Water District is a leading proponent of the tunnels, which are designed, according to the B, to improve the flow of water to the South State. I find it curious that the person that sold these islands to the Metropolitan Water District was the Swiss insurer Zurich Insurance Group. They'd bought these islands with the idea of perhaps flooding them during wet years to send that water south to Los Angeles, but that was shot down by some of the locals. I wonder if down the road it won't turn out to be sorry they didn't back that idea. Anyway, let's go out with a letter to the editors at the B from Barbara Barragan-Paria of Stockton. She's the executive director of Restore the Delta. In response to an op-ed piece that appeared in the B from the state building and construction trades about how terrible it will be if we didn't build these Delta tunnels, Barbara wrote, A rehash plan rejected by voters in 1982. The Delta tunnels still cannot deliver the ecological benefits or the water supply reliability that supporters claim. The EPA gave the draft environmental impact report a failing grade of inadequate. The Santa Clara Valley Water District recently raised serious concern about whether the plans would lead to salmon extinctions. Findings from the state water board and state and federal fishery agencies have repeatedly shown the delta outflows must be significantly increased to protect the estuary's fisheries, drinking water supplies, and agriculture economy. We will continue to follow the chicanery associated with California's water wars. But unfortunately, we're out of time today. Our thanks to Evan Thomas, who spoke to us several years back about his wonderful book. 
the war lovers. You may have seen Mr. Thomas of late on various CNN specials about uh, recent history in America. After reading that book, I went on an Evan Thomas binge myself and read The Wise Men and The Very Best Men, both of which written in collaboration with Walter Isaacson, as well as Ike's Bluff. Evan Thomas is a hell of a good writer, but I do wish he wouldn't hold back sometimes on telling us where the bodies are buried. Then again, I, I suspect he wants to continue in his writing career. Anyway, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We will see you next week in conjunction with the KDVS Pledge Drive, but we'll be hoping to see if we can't bring some funds home where we might best employ them. The plain fact of the matter is that we've spent at least $10,000 a year for the past 14 years for the production of this program. And we've never asked for compensation from KDVS or anyone else. Sorry to say we may have to change that a bit in the future. We'll see you next week.